Talking History. This is News Talk. We shall fight on the beaches, we shall fight in the hills, we shall never surrender. And out of that silence came thousands of voices. The strategy of the white man has always been divide and conquer. As one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Aukteroin, Argus, Akoiza. Good evening and welcome. We're talking history on News Talk 106 to 108 with me, Patrick Gagan. In tonight's show, the extraordinary story of the Galway-born woman who became one of the greatest British codebreakers during the Second World War. We'll also be telling the history of the newly independent Irish state through its photographs. And then to end the show, we'll take a look at how younger sons made their way in Jane Austen's England. Last week, we retold the history of the GAA through its people, objects and stories, inspired by a wonderful new multimedia exhibition in the National Museum of Ireland. And if you want to listen back to this or to any of our older shows, just go to the News Talk app powered by Go Loud, our website, newstalk.com or wherever you download your podcasts. We'd also love to hear from you either tonight or during the week just send us an email talkinghistory at newstalk.com we begin tonight's show with the queen of codes when the history of british code breaking is told the story is often a men only preserve but that perception completely ignores the fact that the vast majority of code breakers were in fact women and foremost among them was one who is largely unknown to the public and whose activities were a secret even to her closest contacts the galway-born woman emily anderson and a new book places Emily Anderson at the forefront of great British codebreakers. The book is called Queen of Codes, The Secret Life of Emily Anderson, Britain's Greatest Female Codebreaker. It's published in hardback by Headline. The author is Jackie Ikiona. And Jackie, you're very welcome back to the show. Thank you so much for having me. So, Jackie, let's begin with Emily Anderson. How come she has been forgotten for so long? Because it is a remarkable story. It's a cinematic story. Yeah, I think it is. Um I think she's been forgotten because so many of the women were forgotten and have been forgotten. The problem, I suppose, with anybody who works in secret intelligence work is that you have to sign the Official Secrets Act and that actually commits you to remaining silent for 60 years. So that's a very long time to stay quiet. And as many of the women took that particular oath, they they honoured it right to their dying day and many women died not having told their husbands, their family, their children what they'd been doing during the war. And Emily Anderson was just one of those. She never broke ranks. She never spoke about that secret part of her life. She lived two entirely separate lives, one in the public domain, if you like, as, as a musicologist, somebody who, who translated the letters of Beethoven and Mozart. But her, her actual public life had nothing to do with, with her professional life, which was as a code breaker, which she never spoke about, which nobody ever knew about. And quite frankly, most of the academic history about intelligence history was largely written by men and has been largely written by men and they pretty much ignore the women. They just assume that they were secretaries or typists instead of the fantastic codebreakers they actually were, including Emily. And she wasn't just involved in codebreaking during the Second World War, but also the First World War. So tell us, how did this woman then from Galway, whose father was the president of the university in the city and herself, you know, a distinguished academic uh, German expert, how did she end up getting involved in this intelligence work? 
Um, I think it's fascinating that she was minding her own business effectively. She'd taken up the position as Professor of German in 1917. Um, Her brother had been um, shot down. He was a member of the Royal Flying Corps in December of 1916 and he was in a prisoner of war camp. So when she came back to Ireland, she'd been teaching abroad in Barbados. She took up the position of Professor of German. There were very few students to teach, so she was getting a little bit bored, I think, because (laughs) German wasn't in the topic of the month to study. So she was getting fed up, number one. But secondly, she had been noticed. Her skills as a linguist, she was an exceptional linguist. You know, she got first class honours in all of her exams in college, um, even down to her finals where they gave her the award of special merit because her answering was so exceptional. So she's a brilliant linguist. Her father's a physicist and a mathematician. So she's got those two sides of her brain working beside each other. She's good at math. She's good at languages. And then she's also a musician, a really talented pianist. So she's used to looking at repetitions of notations. So all of that makes for the perfect code breaker. And when the war broke out and people needed signals intelligence experts, they run out of men pretty quickly. So then they start throwing the net wider towards the women. And they're looking at women. They're looking at women language professors. They're looking at classicists who can read Egyptian hieroglyphics or those who can read Roman and Greek writing. So she gets recruited secretly. She's asked, she's approached, will she serve? She says she will for the duration of the war, but she always intends to come back and take up her position as professor of German. The problem is she's just too good. She's absolutely brilliant at code breaking and her superiors within the British Intelligence Service spot that pretty much straight away. And at the end of the war, having seen her in operation under pressure, she was well able to handle all of that. They approached her and said, will you stay? And she had to make a decision then at that point, which thing she was going to do. Was she going to become a code breaker professionally for the rest of her career or was she going back to academia? So I think there was only ever one answer to that question. But she pretty much sets her own terms. She doesn't want to be, uh, uh, you know, on a on a contract with no view of promotion. She wants she wants a career path. She wants a trajectory. She wants to be respected. She absolutely does. That's a really critical point, I think, because most women who were approached were given pretty loose contracts, you know, and the assumption was, well, why would we invest in training them? Because they're going to get married and then they'll have to leave the civil service anyway because all women had to retire when they got married. And Emily Anderson was never going to get married and her, this was her career. So she wanted a career trajectory, as you said, and she wanted to be established um, on a professional point of the, of the scale. And the lowest point of the professional management scale within the foreign office was junior assistant. And she said, make me a junior assistant or I will not work for you. And they tut-tutted and said, no, we never had a woman junior assistant. And she said, well, then I can be the first. And she was. She ended up sticking to her guns. They weren't able to ignore her and they eventually appointed her as the first woman junior assistant in the entire British civil service. And then she wanted money. She wanted to be on a, on a, on a par salary-wise with her male colleagues. And that was a bridge too far for the Foreign Office. They couldn't possibly countenance that. But she did win a significant increase in her salary, which meant that at one point she was not just the most senior woman in the British Intelligence Service, and indeed in the civil service as a whole, but she was also the best paid. So she broke through so many glass ceilings within that very male-dominated structure because of the sheer force of her personality. 
So take us up to the Second World War then, or let's zoom into the start of the Second World War because she's the queen of diplo, these diplomatic communications. So talk to us about the codes that she's breaking because it's not the military intelligence stuff. It's no. the It's the diplomatic communications that are going back and forth. Yeah, and I think that's really the reason why she's she her career lasts as long as it does because she is listening in on the politicians, she's listening in on the diplomats talking to each other. So in the interwar period, that's absolutely crucial. There are no wars, there's no generals talking to their soldiers. So she is looking at intent, she's looking at alliances. What are the Italians trying to do? Are they really cozying up to the Germans or is there a chance that we could get them on side? So her role as the Queen of Diplomatic Intelligence, she was head of German diplomatic section at Bletchley. Um, she's listening in on all these communications and probably knows before anybody else is what what's going to happen, what the writing is on the wall. Um, and so she is very, very busy. She, she's not even in the first party that goes to Bletchley Park, um, which was a year before the war, war broke out. And in, in, in July of 1938, they set up Bletchley and the first gang go there. She wasn't in that group because they couldn't let her go from London. She was too important. But as soon as the war breaks out, she moves to Bletchley and she begins breaking codes, which is all about, as I, as, as you mentioned, nuance and, and references to writers and artists and musicians, something she was a very educated woman, she was well familiar with. So she's able to listen in on those and say, OK, the Italians are definitely leaning towards the Germans at this stage. And that was critical intelligence for the British to have. Um, but I think probably what makes her very special is because just because she was good at Diplo didn't mean she wasn't good at military SIGINT. And the highlight of her career was really when she ended up switching to military SIGINT, listening in on soldiers and generals and battle plans uh, when she moved to Cairo. So she was only at Bletchley for a year before she moves to Cairo. Yeah, tell us about the period in Cairo because, you know, the city was being bombed. You had Rommel making his way to the gates that this was really right at the, the you know, not quite the front, but very close to the front yeah. of the battle. Yeah, I mean, Rommel was about seven miles from Cairo at one point and Cairo was certainly being attacked by by by, by bombs and by, by art, uh, aerial attack. So she was sticking her neck out big time and the important thing is she didn't have to do it. She could have happily sat in Bletchley and done her Italian diplo, but instead she knew that the Italians had to be defeated. So she goes to Cairo. It, it's a journey that took nearly four weeks because they couldn't fly. They had to go by planes, trains and automobiles and went the whole length of Africa to get to Cairo. And when she gets there, she begins not only breaking diplo uh, codes, but she's also breaking military code. So she knows what the Italian Navy are doing. She knows what the Italian Air Force are doing. She knows what the Italian military are doing. But she's also listening in on the German codes as well because she is a multilinguist. You know, German was probably her preferred language. Um, and the intelligence that she produced, undoubtedly, there's no question about this, won the British, the East Africa campaign, which was critical. It was the first major military success of the Allies in the war um, in, 40, uh, in 1941-42. And it is critical because it takes Italy out of the war. They're no longer an ally of Germany because they're utterly defeated largely on the basis of the intelligence that she provides, breaking their codes. She knows exactly what they're doing. And she gets the OBE for that, for that service. And it's awarded in 1943 when the war is still happening. So that gives you some idea of how important and significant that was. In fact, her boss, the head of Bletchley Park, um, said that 
the intelligence that she produced in the East Africa campaign definitely impacted the outcome of it. And he described it as the perfect example of the cryptographer's war. In other words, those soldiers who said listening in on the enemy is no is no point. It's men with guns that win battles completely turned that on its head and they said, yeah, we want more intel. Give us more intel. We need more people like Emily. She was used to dealing with secrets in her professional career, but she was also used to dealing with secrets in her private life as well. And you've uncovered, you know, a fascinating insight into into her own uh, her own relationships, her own private life. Mm. I mean, I think that's probably, I didn't expect to find that, but it was extraordinary when I did. Um, she left uh, Galway in, in 1920 for good and never returned to Ireland. And I think a lot of that was to do with the fact that she was actually a gay woman. She was um, uh, a woman who had affairs with other women. She had one long-standing affair and at least one other relationship that we know of. And there may have been others, but she's a secretive woman, so it's hard to find all of them. But there's no doubt that she was utterly unapologetic about her sexuality. She lived openly with her girlfriend at when she was working at Bletchley and I was fortunate enough to meet a woman in whose house she and her partner lived. So I have first-hand testimony of the, the relationship. That was exceptional in those days. You know, she couldn't get arrested for having a relationship with another woman because that wasn't on the statute books in the way that Alan Turing was persecuted for it. But she was utterly unapologetic about it. She knew that they couldn't do anything about it. And she sort of said, well, you know, I'm really good at what I do. What does it matter what I do in my private life? It's nothing to do with you. So she then, when she moves to Cairo, she brings her partner with her, who's also, by the way, a fantastic code breaker in her own right, but a much, much younger woman. Um, and that relationship doesn't outlive the war. It pretty much ends when her, her, her partner meets a man and went for the respectability of marriage and, and children. Um, and the relationship broke up, but it was all very amicable and all of her superiors knew about it. So it's not that she hid it, but she wasn't shouting it from the rooftops. But then she didn't shout anything from the rooftops. That's why nobody knew anything about her. You've looked at some of these codes. How difficult was it to actually crack them? Oh, listen, I mean, I could be looking at a, at a page of this, these transcripts from now to Christmas and I still wouldn't make sense of it. But you see, the thing you have to remember about this woman is that she'd been doing it for 30 years by the time she got to the peak of her powers. Um, she knew to look at it and, and, and codes, the transcripts that you get are basically groups of five uh, letters or numbers. So groups of five, 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 five. And you have to figure out what language has been written in. You have to figure out what's been said. Some codes are double enciphered. In other words, they're encoded once and then they're encoded twice. So what you're looking for is patterns and repetitions. And because she was so good at music, because she was so good at math, she's looking at that and she sees things on a page that nobody else will see. And it's the ones that have those sparks of flashes of inspiration. They're the ones who really, really become the outstanding code breakers. And there's no doubt that Emily Anderson was an outstanding code breaker definitely the best woman in the British Intelligence Service and that's coming officially from the British Intelligence Service who've confirmed that to me. Now you've mentioned music and her great love of music and it's incredible her post-war career working on uh, Beethoven on Mozart and she receives the Order of Merit first class from the German government in 1961. I know that is the great thing at, at her funeral actually I think it's mar- remarkable on her coffin were her OBE that she got for intelligence work in, in the Second World War but also was the medal she'd got a year previously in 1961 from the German government as you said the Order of Marriage First Class. It's the Iron Cross, effectively. It's a really senior reward the Germans give for her work on Beethoven. 
and the German ambassador was at her funeral. But the Germans had absolutely no idea that this woman had been listening in on their communications in through two world wars and the interwar period. They had no idea whatsoever. That's I've checked it. They didn't know. So how did she pull that off? I do not know because the whole time that she's working as Britain's top female codebreaker, she's also travelling to Germany and Austria and Vienna and, and, and going all over the world looking for Beethoven letters to, to write her collected letters of Beethoven and speaking fluent German and having great friends in those countries and going to concerts. And at the end of the day, then going back to her day job, which is basically at the top, the upper echelon of British intelligence. It's an extraordinary double act to pull off. And very few people could read the handwriting of Beethoven, but she, in a way, cracked it as if it was just one of her World War codes. She just looked for patterns. Yeah, that's exactly it. And she said that in an interview, actually, she gave to the BBC, that she just kept looking at it over and over and over and over again. And then you put it aside and then you have a look at it again and you think, okay, yeah, it could be that, it could be that, it could be that. And that's how you crack a code. That's how you decode. And she said this in in the interview. It was the first and only interview she ever gave. But interestingly and fascinatingly for me, the guy interviewing her was also a code breaker. And it's clear from the interview that halfway through the interview, he goes, hold on a second. This woman isn't some, you know, nice, refined spinster who does a little bit of musicology on the side and translates ambassador's speeches during the day. He got it very quickly and that's very clear from the interview. And I think that reflects the duality of her life. I don't think she could have been the code breaker she was if she didn't have that time to be able to indulge her love and her passion for music. I think it was the thing that sustained her. It gave her the friendships that sustained her because it was quite a lonely life being a code breaker. It's very intense, focused work. And music gave her that whole other world that she could escape to when she was finished with the day job. And finally, what was her view of Ireland? The fact that she didn't come back. Was there a sense there that her loyalty was to Britain, to the British Empire, and that perhaps once Ireland became independent, she felt that connection broken in some way? For her, I don't think the connection was ever there, to be honest with you. She was a Presbyterian. Her father was from Coleraine, a staunch Presbyterian. Her mother was Presbyterian. She was raised as a Presbyterian. So in a Presbyterian in Ireland, her family were very much the pro the First World War, very much pro the Second World War. And she felt she was born into the empire, she was born in 1891. So she's born a British citizen. She is employed in the British Secret Service as a British citizen because she joins in 1920 officially. So she is a British citizen to all intents and purposes and never returned to Ireland much during the rest of her life. So Ireland is where she's from, but it's not... She doesn't feel of it. I I get that sense. You know, England was where her life was, her freedom and her career. Well, it's an absolutely brilliant story. And Tulsa, well, I think you were involved in a lot of code breaking as well, (laughs) putting together her story, a a wonderful piece of detective work. Thank you. uh, Reconstructing the life of Emily Anderson, the queen of codes. It's the secret life of Emily Anderson, Britain's greatest female code breaker, published in hardback by Headline, the author, the wonderful Jackie E. Kiona. And Jackie, we'll have to bring you back on the show very soon. (laughs) That'd be great. Especially when it gets turned into a major Hollywood movie or a Netflix mini series or something. (laughs) That's Uh, the hope. Thank you. We'll have a lot more to say about Emily Anderson. Well, the book Queen of Code
codes. Highly recommended. And we'll be back with more on Talking History right after this. Welcome back to Talking History. A new book celebrates a formative period in the history of the Irish state, the 15 years during which we emerged from the rubble of wars and violence and set up as a fledgling country while establishing a diplomatic presence on the world stage. It brings together over 150 photographs gathered from archives around the country, accompanied by insightful and accessible commentary by the author historian Michael B. Barry. The book is called A Nation is Born. It covers the years 1922 to 1938. The subtitle Ireland in Colour and the book is published in hardback by Gill Books and I'm delighted to welcome the author uh, Michael Barry to the show tonight. Hello Patrick. I should mention the person you do these with John O'Byrne and uh, tell us about the work that John does. John is a true artist who's been specialising colourising for over well over a decade and the essential thing with the colorization of in this book and in our other books is that uh, John does this by hand. He uses um, Adobe Photoshop, but he, he has to select each part of the image. And if you look at some of the some of the images with particularly the crowd scenes with people with different clothes and so on, it's I marvel at his patience, but he he also has expertise um, in that, for example, he knows the type of clothing people had in the 20s, 30s. He's also, he's been colorizing Irish military photographs for ages, so he knows the uniforms. And and just to add that in this particular period, the end of the 20s and the beginning of the 30s, we were blessed with having two particular things. One was the the new Irish Army section called the Blue Hussars, who was splendid blue uniforms. And the other other thing, not not perhaps not so pleasant aspect, uh, again blue, but the blue shirts. Uh, the blue shirts were quite colourful with their various uniforms. Yeah, you mentioned the Blue Hussars there and I actually have the page open in the book in front of me. How, I suppose, would John know what exact shade of blue to make the uniform and indeed with the the blue shirts or the page before has Eamon de Valera in a in a in a in a lovely blue automobile but you know would you be certain that that actually was blue or perhaps it was red ultimately that is the possibility but john has a great experience and he can tell from the shade of black and white what the colour might might well be. With regard to the blue stars, that's relatively easy in the sense that there are descriptions of the uniforms and in addition there would be there are examples of the uniforms collectors have them and they're also in the National Museum of Ireland in, in Collins Barracks. Brilliant, so it is a piece of detective work where you're kind of tracing it down and then uh, where you don't have those physical examples then just by an analysis of the shading you can kind of make an estimate. Yes, and um, in particular areas uh, we were helped by um, people who have particular detailed knowledge of specific aspects of the history. For example, um, the railway locomotives and carriages, thanks to um, a very helpful man, Jonathan Bowman, for example, who knows his railways backwards, we were able to get the right carriages, uh, colour of the carriages and so on. Now, it does cover uh, the period 1922 to 1938 and De Valera does feature prominently throughout the book and it is fascinating to look at uh, his image when it has been colourised. You do get, you know, a, a, a kind of a different take on De Valera. That's true. It's only when I started doing this book that I really got an appreciation of the formative things 
And the great things that he did, he did some bad things as well because uh, previously we had uh, de- dealt with de Valera's role during the Irish Civil War. But his party did bring a new vigour to Irish politics. That's when they took over in 1932. But equally, de Valera had a kind of, kind of an aura. It's, uh, there's one particular photograph showing him wearing a cloak on a horse. Uh, I think he obviously had a sense of theatricality as well. Uh, it's odd that he, he was able to attract such attention, yet at the same time, apparently his speaking tone in front of the crowds was pretty, he drawn on a bit, but he, he was able, he, his aura was able to attract the crowds. And a fascinating insight in the first part of the book of those difficult early years of the new free state where you see uh, cabinet meetings, meetings, pictures of the government, but also uh, what the, you know, the early, the civic guard, what became the guard of Shikona, you see the army, you see a society beginning to readjust from the, the civil war to this new world. Yes, it was quite difficult for the, the Comunagel government. They had fought a hard battle during the civil war uh, and the there were some atrocities carried out. But when they started off uh, the beginning of 1923, they, they did inherit a poison chalice and um, they, they had the, they, they had many tasks to do. They had the reconstruction of all the damaged buildings, not just during the Civil War, uh, uh, but also the War of Independence as well. So tell me about some of the great triumphs then of that, because one of them was the the Shannon hydroelectric scheme. And again, some wonderful images there where you're really seeing just, I suppose, the power and the scale of the ambition. It is incredible, actually. Um, I still do not understand how the Commonwealth government in the time in 1925, a government not known for... um, great uh, vigor or um and uh, we, who were um macabreish they were fiscally stringent they 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 they, they were more uh, intent on cutting back on expenditure uh, but they took this this big initiative which uh, apparently in 1925 it consumed 20% of the state's revenue they uh, undertook this um, scheme which had never of such a scale which had never been done anywhere else in the world. They were lucky that they got Siemens because Siemens uh, gave them a very good deal. They were um, uh, they had lost a lot during the First World Wars and they wanted to make um, a presence on the international stage. And um, so work began in uh, ni- 1925 to harness the power of the Shannon. And it was a massive scheme. Uh, at its height, there were 5,000 workers, of which there were probably would have been about a thousand Germans working on the scheme. And it transformed the land. There was an awful lot of uh, earth to be moved down in County Clare and um, transform uh, the built bridges and they had a special railway uh, with, uh, I think, about a thousand kilometre of track just to move all the earth and the materials. And uh, eventually, at the end of the decade, the the government was able to switch on the new scheme. And uh, that truly did help transform uh, or give a basis for the economy of Ireland to move into modernity. 
You get also get a great insight into Ireland on the world stage and in terms of diplomacy and positioning. And again, a wonderful you know spread of over two pages of a visit by W. T. Cosgrave, the president of the Executive Council to the United States, and he's there in a car with the mayor of Chicago, Big Big Bill Thompson, and Big Bill is in his fur coat, and W. T. looks uh, a little more cold, and uh, but a great insight into you know the kind of the soft. Power diplomacy that you see. Yes, and um, the the Free State government was quite conscious of um, our, our, our Ireland was the the new state on the block, if you like, uh, and they they were trying to uh, present Ireland on the world stage uh, almost immediately in September, nineteen twenty three. They became a member of the League of Nations, and then Ireland pers- participated very very actively with the League of Nations. And um, they presented the treaty, uh, the Anglo-Irish Treaty, in fr- in front of the uh, League of Nations, which was not particularly liked by the British. The British tried to dissuade this because they took Ireland was a dominion, and they took they had the opinion that um, all dominions had to be represented by the British Foreign Service, and uh, the Free State at all times tried to cut through this and to assert Ireland as an independent country. You get a great sense of uh, transport technology as well. There are cars, there are aeroplanes, quite a few aeroplanes in it, uh, boats, uh, ships, railway lines, that you get a real sense of uh, the means that people use to get around the country and around the world. That's true. On different levels, um, there are interesting developments in transport. One in particular and a very colourful aspect is aviation because Ireland just luckily happened to be on the edge of the Atlantic and there were an awful lot of aviation pioneers at that time trying to fly the Atlantic from uh, west to east and east east to west. So uh, you have a whole plethora of great aviation events happening such as the, the Bremen plane which uh, was a German plane, a single-engine German plane, but uh, two Germans and uh, one Irishman, Colonel Fitzmaurice, who was head of the Air Corps at the time. You had uh, other pioneers. Um, uh, Amelia Earhart was flying from Newfoundland to Paris, but she had a northerly track. She had engine trouble. She had to come down in Derry. Uh, Derry actually was the scene of probably the most spectacular event in aviation was in 1933, when an Italian general and his 27 of his Air Force fly, uh, flying boats landed in in the foil in Derry on their way to North America the, to attend the Chicago World Fair. But it was a spectacular sight to see 27 flying boats in in the foil. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure having Michael Barry on, the author of A Nation is Born. It's Ireland in colour going from 1922 to 1938, published in hardback by Gill Books. And Michael, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Patrick. We'll be back with more Talking History on News Talk right after this. Well, welcome back to Talking History. In Regency England, the eldest son usually inherited almost everything, while his younger brothers left with little inheritance had to make a crucial decision – 
What should they do to make an independent living? Well, a new book provides a portrait of Jane Austen's England, told through the career paths of younger sons. It weaves together the stories of many obscure and well-known young men, shedding light on an overlooked aspect of Regency society. The book is called Gentlemen of Uncertain Fortune, How Younger Sons Made Their Way in Jane Austen's England. It's published in paperback by Yale University Press. And I'm delighted to welcome the author Rory Muir to the show tonight. Rory, you're very welcome. Thank you very much, Patrick. It's a pleasure to be on the programme. So can I begin with a question of uh, how did you, the great scholar of the Napoleonic Wars and the award-winning author of that study of (laughs) Wellington, how did you end up writing about these younger sons in Jane Austen's England? Well, I've always been, I've always loved Jane Austen's novels ever since I first encountered them in my teens. And I'd always thought that there was a a way into um, writing about England and the period through the books. But I'd never thought much about the younger sons. We'd all, everyone who'd read about the period heard how limited the opportunities for women were and how important marriage was in defining their place in society and important for a young woman without much money to marry well. But younger sons were, or men were assumed to either inherit money or to be able to go out into the world and make money. And no one had looked at it much more than that. But then I was editing the letters of Alexander Gordon, um, who was the brother of the Earl of Aberdeen and um, one of Wellington's ADCs. And from the outside, he must have looked the epitome of privilege, a young man in a fine uniform on a beautiful horse riding right next to Wellington in the Peninsular War, um, you know, very well-dressed and very privileged. But as I looked at the letters, he was constantly talking to his brother about money, and I dug a bit further. Now, Lord Aberdeen was a very wealthy man. He inherited the estate from his grandfather when he was only about 17, and he got an income of 16 or 17,000 pounds a year, which would today be, I don't know, 2 million pounds a year, or more probably. Um... But Alexander Gordon, his younger brother by a couple of years, he inherited £2,000. That was his capital. And that would bring in an income of maybe £100 a year, which was not enough for anyone to live on. So I looked at the other positions of other brothers. Alexander Gordon had to have a career, and so did his brothers. A couple went into the Navy, one went into diplomacy, um, another one went into the Army as well as he did. And they couldn't live on their pay, and their older brother gave them a, a bit of an allowance to help them along. He gave Alexander Gordon about £250 a year, as well as his army pay, which was about the same. So this privileged man in his mid-twenties who'd served in, in a distinguished way in campaigns in three different continents was relying on his brother for a, you know, an allowance and I thought, this, this is really interesting. And I look, when I looked further, there were quite a limited choice of careers open to well-born men, young men, um, whether they were from Jane Austen's strata of society, who were either the sons of gentlemen with some money or um, from the aristocracy even, um, like, like Alexander Gordon. And so I dug down to find out what were the options and what were the pros and cons of each career. 
And what's extraordinary is that even though these men were part of a privileged elite, they they knew all along that they weren't quite as privileged as their older brother. And there was always a certain insecurity because of that. Absolutely. They, they could usually, unless family relations were very bad, they could usually rely on their father or their older brother who, or possibly even their grandfather if he was still alive to help them along, to help them get established. But after that, it was up to them. The older brother would marry and have children of his own and they would be the first priority. So they would be given a, a start, they'd be set on the ladder, but and they might be given a, a helping hand when you know they needed a, a further step up somewhere along the line, particularly if it could be done through patronage. But um, essentially, it was, it was quite tough. There was a lot of competition in, in all of these careers and only quite a small minority of people did very well. And there was only a handful of jobs that were really open to them or that were considered respectable enough. Uh, the church, the law, uh, maybe the army or the navy, perhaps medicine in a small few cases, maybe uh, banking or trade, uh, you know, business, you know, merchants more than uh, being a tradesman. And, and that really, so you only had a few avenues open to you. That's right. That's right. There were very few ways in which a gentleman could earn money and remain a gentleman. Um, the serving the king in the army or the navy was certainly acceptable, and many younger sons of the aristocracy went into the army and the navy. Um, but going into the church was totally acceptable, and in the 18th century, the clergy had begun to get a, a better pay, and so it was become a in some cases, at any rate, it was very uneven. In all these careers, the rewards were hugely uneven between the the great mass who didn't do very well and other and the few at the top who did extremely well. Um, and you know, the lawyers were reasonably respectable. Doctors, particularly physicians, were were reasonably respectable, though they tended to be more from Jane Austen's class and below than from the aristocracy. Jane Austen's brother Henry Austen is a fascinating figure because he goes through a number of different uh, career changes. Uh, he's initially uh, interested in a career in the church, then he joins the militia, an army agent, he gets involved in banking, there's financial problems, goes back and then becomes a clergyman that he goes through a huge uh, a, a huge number of transformations. He does, he does indeed and it's it's quite a, a modern um, career path in a way. So most most of the young men took one career and stayed in it until things radically changed. So in Henry Austin's case, he you know, the bankruptcy of his business after the when the war ended led him to forced him to find another career, and he went into the church as he'd originally intended. Um, many army officers and navy officers at the end of the Napoleonic Wars may have hung on for a year or two or three to, in the hope that there'd been some other war or some other opportunity. But they were left on half pay, which was the sort of um, this pay that they were given when they weren't being actively employed, and it didn't amount to quite half their actual pay, and it wasn't really enough to live on unless you had quite a lot of private income. And so some of them would leave the army and go into the church or go out to the colonies. But because there were so many people coming into those careers, 
things got much tighter in the couple of decades after Waterloo than they'd been during the war years. Uh, Francis Austin was a younger brother, was hugely successful. He ended up becoming an admiral and indeed admiral of the fleet. He did, though the final step there was a matter of living long enough um, in both the army and the navy. Once you reached a, a certain fairly high level, promotion then was simply seniority. And if you, you know, you had to do well to get to that level, but after that, it was simply a matter of outliving your your contemporaries and um, getting to the top of the tree in that way. And so he he was highly regarded and was actually given an active command in in much later life in the um, in the eighteen forties. He was sent out to the West Indies for a couple of years to command the British squadron there and took a couple of his daughters with him. Um, he was he's a good instance of how things worked because he wanted to go, he chose to go into the navy. And his father organised for him to go to the Naval Academy at Portsmouth, which was unusual. Most young boys, because they were only about 12, 13, 14, went to sea under the patronage of a captain at first. But some of them went to the Naval Academy. And he did very well there. And then he got the patronage of Admiral Gambia, who was a very well-connected naval officer who thought highly of Francis Austin and um, looked after him in his career and made sure of, that really meant that he was actively employed. It didn't mean that he was protected from danger or anything, quite the reverse. It meant that he would be given a command because there were far more naval officers, even at the time of Trafalgar, than there were commands for them. There were Quite a lot of young officers were employed, but once you re- reached the rank of even a commander or a captain and were designated, you know, your role was to command a single ship, then there weren't enough ships to go around. And so only the officers who were both regarded as good officers and reliable, but also were had some connection, some some talent, um, some patronage network were likely to get employed regularly. It was patronage, it was a patron in the career that you were in that counted for most. It mattered far more to be have an influential admiral on your side if you're a naval officer than to have a lord so-and-so or a, even an MP or um, the, possibly the Archbishop of Canterbury or somebody like that. Didn't wasn't as useful. The word luck appears quite often in the book and it's interesting how significant that is as a factor. Someone could be very clever, they could be very talented, but if the luck isn't with them, their career goes nowhere and they end up maybe poor and in obscurity. And uh, But then the right break at the right time and it can be the making of them. Absolutely. Absolutely. It was very stark in reading about these people's lives, um, just how important luck was. Now, I think luck's pretty important in anyone's life today. And um, I think how people get on and get their first start in a career today can owe a great deal to luck. And you see sort of people like musicians or actors who somebody reaches, has great success and there's a lot of luck at some point or other there, but um, there's a, there was a young lawyer, John Scott, who 
it's a, it has a great story. He um, was a young man, studied at Oxford, had a fellowship and things, and was probably going to go into the church, but hadn't quite decided between the church and the law. But he fell in love with a, a young woman from his hometown of Newcastle, and he um, they eloped. They eloped when he was 21 and she was 18, and they got they got married and their families forgave them, and he still hoped to get a, a church living, but that would really depend on one becoming available within a year of his marriage. And in the meantime, he studied the law very hard, found it extremely tiresome, as most people studying the law seem to, then and now. A church preferment didn't become available, so he became he became a lawyer, studied and qualified for the bar, and became a barrister, and very few jobs came in, and the years went by, and his, he and his wife started to have children, and money was very tight, and he grew very despondent. And he was just on the point of giving up and going back home to Newcastle where he would have been able to get a, earn a modest income, enough to keep the family just okay. And then he had two pieces of luck at once, one or in close succession. Um, one morning, rapping on the door, some gentlemen were outside. They came for his help because the lawyer they were employing to present a petition to Parliament against an election in Clitheroe had fallen ill, and the man who was meant to be his deputy wouldn't take it at such short notice because he hadn't had time to study it. And so they came to Scott, and he he took up the job and didn't couldn't make much of it at first, but he he made his name by that case and another. And you know, on, when he went on the um, tour through the the assizes, um, that that year he got plenty of commissions and that. And it was just that man, that other lawyer being ill, that turned his life around. And he ended up Lord Chancellor and worth a great deal of money and was you know, the most distinguished judge of his day. Yeah, it's extraordinary. In the 1790s, became Attorney General and Chief Justice, Lord Chancellor and uh, this hugely significant figure. And and only for that, you know, quirk of fate, you know, he might have been exactly. giving up the career. Exactly. Now, your book also shows that these aren't all success stories, that there is many examples of people who, who joined the Navy or the Army or who went off to India and they didn't find fame, they didn't find fortune, that uh, they might have found disease or death or, or just other kinds of, of problems. That's right. Um, the odds were always stacked against success or... In some careers, you might do all right if you were content with a very quiet, modest sort of way. Most clergymen who got a living would be able to to live out their lives in obscurity on a modest income. And if they had some money of their own and they had the right mental outlook, they could probably be quite happy and contented like that. But um, the chances of becoming very successful were all very slim. You needed a lot of luck and usually quite a deal of ability. And um, it was it was a, a hard a hard road to hoe. I often think that I'm surprised that people from these privileged backgrounds were not more resentful that they um, didn't mind that they, they accepted it as inevitable and and 
you know, looked, looked in the hope, went ahead in the hope that they would succeed where so many others failed. And in terms of these different career paths, you know, what was the what was the best route for someone to take? Ah, well, it depended on what you wanted. Um, if you were happy to have you you wanted to be comfortable, but you weren't very ambitious, and you had some connections, it might have been the church. You would be living in the country with a small parish. Maybe if you were lucky and had connections, you might get two nearby parishes like uh, um, George Austin, Jane Austen's father had. And if you had a little bit of money as well, that might lead to a, a very happy, contented life if that suited your nature. But if you were more adventurous or more ambitious, you might fall in love with the sea, you might really enjoy being in the Navy, and you might find your satisfaction there. Um, the person who was ideally suited to being a barrister was unlikely to be the person who'd be very happy living leading a very quiet um, life in the countryside and, and vice versa. If you think of Jane Austen's heroines, you can imagine that um, um, Fanny from uh, Mansfield Park would, would hate a, a life of a very prominent, demanding position and, and would hate it if her husband had one. But some of the others would be perfectly happy to have a, a more demanding thing. So it's a matter of what would suit your personality? Though in most cases it was also a matter of where there were connections and you'd be able to get a foot, a foot in the door in the first case of first step of a career. What's fascinating is just how much a role money played and connections played in the, these things as well. Now we've talked about luck, but it wasn't just luck that sometimes you did need to have uh, money, you didn't need someone to be able to put in a good word. The talent alone wasn't always enough and it kind of was a somewhat rotten system uh, for getting ahead. Oh yes, um, you know, no, absolutely. A lot of, some careers needed, definitely needed money. I mean, obviously something like banking, you needed some capital, you needed a start. Um, the army commissions were most generally bought, purchased, and you, your family didn't get them back if you, you died, you know, even on active service. Um, in other cases, money didn't actually help, but um, patronage did. And that was often the patronage of some superior in your in your field. So if you and that was often given um, quite freely and for good reasons. A, a senior naval officer would love to sponsor and encourage and support a, a very talented rising young officer because you would you would feel enormous satisfaction if you had been the patron of Nelson or St Vincent or Palou. You'd one of these men who became heroes of the nation and you'd help them on their career in the early days. Um, but other patronage was a matter of family connections and um, sometimes reciprocal benefits. The um, the Archbishop of Canterbury might give a, a comfortable living to to a young clergyman because the young clergyman's uncle was able to give a helping hand along to the Archbishop of Canterbury's nephew who was looking for a, a, a career in the law or in probably not in medicine, the Archbishop of Canterbury's case, but perhaps, um, or some other field. 
And finally, is there a particular character story that uh, you enjoy the most researching and telling? Oh, well, I am very fond of John Scott Lord Eldon's career, partly because he rose to such eminence but remained very um, earthy and pungent in his expressions and and was never very pompous. And um, also Alexander Gordon, who, who... went through so much and lasted throughout the whole of the Napoleonic Wars at Wellington's side and finally was killed at Waterloo and and quite late in the battle, having been doing his best to keep Wellington safe throughout the the action, leading his horse out of, leading Wellington's horses uh, with Wellington on it, out of danger a number of times, somewhat to Wellington's frustration. And then he was hit by a cannonball just as the battle was going and carried back to Wellington's headquarters where he died that night. Well, congratulations on the new book. A fascinating insight into how younger sons made their way in Jane Austen's England. The book is called Gentlemen of Uncertain Fortune. It's published now in paperback by Yale University Press. The author, Rory Muir. And Rory, thanks so much for joining us tonight. Thank you very much, Patrick. It's been a real pleasure. And that brings us to the end of another edition of Talking History. My thanks to my series producer, Marais O'Sullivan, to Simon Keaton, who helped produce tonight, and to Peter Malloy on sound. We've got more debate and discussion next week, so hope you can join us then. We've been Talking History. Good night.